Welcome to Strange Assembly, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast. My name is Chris Stevenson. Here with me today are Kevin Kennedy. Hey, guys. Gerald. Hey. Jonathan Freeman. Hey, I'm back. And did, did I forget my glasses? Who the heck are you? I'm Evan Paula. How y'all doing? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't actually talk like that, but wouldn't it be great if I did? This is our it would be great. substitute today. <laughs> yes. So we, we took our normal Mantis player. We placed him with a lion. Let's see if anyone notices. I think Trevor will notice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's Trevor. He might not. Okay, Evan. So we each of us in the first straight assembly episode did our little uh, silly introduction. So why don't you tell our listeners who the heck you are? So I'm uh, I'm on the forums as Velo seventy five. I'm pretty active on there. So you've probably seen me. Uh, I also play a lot of Mega Panku on the same name. Um, and that's pretty much probably the only way you're likely to know me because I live in Tennessee, which has always kind of, at least in the time I've been playing, which is since the beginning of Samurai, it hasn't had the biggest player bases in the world, so I rely a lot on, uh, you know, getting a free weekend every now and then and traveling to, you know, like here to Atlanta or, you know, uh, to Knoxville. I had to go all the way to St. Louis, uh, to go to, uh, and Alabama to go to Kotai's, but, uh. Dude, you I, got that whole. I don't have anybody to play with. I guess I'll just have to randomly go and win this Kote. Yeah, I, I did. I did win in St. Louis because I managed to avoid LSC and Ninja and Monk and pretty much <laughs> the deck would have severely destroyed my uh, Lion Follower deck, which has some gigantic Achilles heels. But somehow I made it through. Uh, now that was a lot of fun. I got an iPod Touch out of it. That was pretty sweet. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next season. Uh, I'm, I'm in medical school, and my fourth year is coming up, so I should have some more free time to go to some more Cortez, so hopefully you all see me a little bit more this year than last year. All right. On this episode of Strange Assembly, we're going to be talking about the implementation of the themes idea in Celestial Edition, a little bit of wrap-up on Empire at War, a nice little history lesson from old man Freeman. <laughs> After you're done listening to us, feel free to come visit us at www.strangeassembly.com. You can download more episodes of our podcast there or off of iTunes. Just search for a Strange Assembly. If you have anything to say, feel free to send us an email at strangeassembly at gmail.com or go onto the forums at our website, and we'd be happy to hear from you. So for our last two episodes, we've been talking about Empire at War, and especially the morons in the, the two guys in the last episode, I hear people have said some, some really idiotic comments. So I know that there are some of us here now who maybe had some of their own observations about Empire at War that they'd like to, to get out there. Uh, what do you have, Evan? I, I really hate those guys, first of all, and I'm glad that you decided not to bring them back. But uh, I did want to add a couple of things about Lion, since that's really the only thing that I'm here to talk about is the only thing I know anything about. But uh, I did want to say that Matsu Atsuko, the uh, new Death Seeker, basically single-handedly makes Death Seeker a playable deck now. Like, you know, I haven't gotten to do this much in real life, but I've been on Agapanku with the Death Seeker deck, and as long as somebody doesn't have only action speak in their hand, which granted is a really big if, but you can pull off honor gains of 10 to 15 to even 20 in one battle with those guys, because you can 
Yeah, she, she's what makes it work. So you can calm before death on Haruya. That's six on her right there. She reacts. That's two more. That's uh, eight right there. And then you can play uh, Cleansing Death and bring a guy in from your dynasty, and that's another two. You've already gained ten honor with two fake guards at the cost of destroying one guy, and you've also reduced the force and destroyed one of the opponent's guys. I mean, Deathseeker is truly scary, especially people that have seen it before. Like, I've been accused of, like, like, oh, this deck is totally cheap, and, you know, it's not fair that you should gain 10 honor in one battle. It's like, you know, it happens, and you got to be prepared for it. Like, I actually think that Deathseekers could perform decently in the upcoming uh, competitive season if people figure out that it's actually good. So they're going to do horribly? Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're going to do awfully. But that's the thing, is that the one trump card is the card that everybody has in their deck, and that's yeah. the main issue. It's probably going to be the best line deck that people are playing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when I saw Cleansing Death, I immediately figured that Death Secrets would, would get playable eventually. Um, it's, it's a good card, and then if you give them something just a little bit more, then Asuka just is that little bit more. And a fun fact is that she combos with uh, Calm Before Death. The way it works is that she reacts before that card goes through. So you can target anybody. They can have a million force for all you care. As long as they don't have a follower, she reduces them to zero, and then Calm Before Death kills them. So it's, it's just an incredible... I've killed, like, Tamaga with that. You can kill, you know, dudes Kenzai with two big-ass weapons on there. Uh, I mean, it's really great. What do you think about the the Deathseeker Kata or Pseudo Kata? I don't play it in my deck, um, and that's basically because it's not really doing enough for me to really put a slot in my deck. Ideally, it's not it's never actually going to kill Deathseekers by the text of that own card because the Deathseekers have a lifespan of about two turns anyway. If you're playing the deck right, um, and so if you're just doing that, then you're increasing the force of each of your death seekers, but like that that deck can only draw cards from traveling pedal basically, and that's about it. So and you know, maybe counting has to be playing that. Because otherwise the card draw in that deck is basically non existent. And I just really can't afford to waste a card slot on what's gonna end up being a one or two force bonus. It's just not enough for me. Are you not gonna run expendable resources in that deck? I don't because I got plenty of other ways to kill my own guys. <laughs> I've, I've had no problem not having enough dead dudes to uh, run re- to play Remember Their Valor at the very end of the game to get that, like, you know, seven or eight honor gain, gain on the last turn. Uh, and that's ideally what happens, that you end up with seven or eight or more dead guys in discard pile. Then the last turn, you've been saving your Remember Their Valors. You even play one of them, suddenly have a 24 Death Seeker, uh, and you've gained eight honor. And... Uh, People are just like, I can't do anything against that. Does that deck play attachments? No, not at all. Okay. Oh, no. Not so you have a 24th <laughs> just... Death Seeker that can be killed by like a ton of cards in the environment yeah. still, but okay. it's not always easy to kill a 24th dude. True. Any other lion comments? Uh, I guess the only other thing is that I really don't think that the new tactician is very playable, the guy who recycles cards. Like, in theory, he's great because. He's card draw, kind of like that, uh, the dragon dude who just straight up draws you a card. Except for the fact that, first of all, eight gold is a ton for any lion deck. It's like, you'd be, you better get a great ability if you're going to be paying eight gold for a guy. That's why the, the eight gold guys we get are like Benica and Sudokan who have absolutely superb abilities. But 
we don't get somebody like Akoto Shinichi who has a garbage ability even for being a 4 4 gold tactician. This guy, he doesn't work with will, he doesn't work with civility. You know, he's only if you're buying him basically straight up, and if you buy him early, then you're not going to have any battle actions in your discard pile anyway. So you're ending up with a blank four-force tactician for eight gold. It's just not enough. Uh, other than that, uh, I like Hagio a lot. Nine gold is a lot for a lion, but and giving... what a monster overlay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh my goodness. I did that a couple of times a day, and everybody went, Wait, that guy has a non-experience in the, in the art? Yes, 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 they do. And his non-experience is solid, too. Yeah, he's solid. Exactly. He's and not bad. Especially in weapon decks, you know, where he can be a big force unbowing at the end of the turn. It's, he, he can be monstrous. So, I put him in my follower decks. He's in the weapon deck. He's in the, he's definitely in the unique deck. Um, and, you know, before we had Matsu Kenji, who was basically, in my opinion, a worse version of him for the cost. Like, I, I really wouldn't put her in much of anything anymore after he came out. People put her in stuff at all? Yeah, in the unique stack. She she gets put in there because she's the unique, like because she's unique and because yeah. she's got a decent battle action and she's got nice keywords also. Are you concerned about Lion getting hit by crossing the Forbidden Sea and increased use of Claw and Shell? That people feel that they have to pack the meta against Breeder. Clan Shell is not getting is not going to get any more popular than it was in the Playboy environment. Like people are still playing it a lot, um, and you know I was actually pretty pessimistic initially about the way the line would perform after Playboy came out because you know at the time our best decks were attachment decks. I mean I have a six gold dude and I've spent fourteen gold in attachments for that guy, and then he gets clawed, then the game's over at that point. Um, but you know, if that didn't kill the lion, I really don't think crossing will kill it. There's the other new event, I forget what that's called now, where it's basically the winter storm, except that it hits lion. You know, where you have to bow the guy after an attack is declared every turn. IG3 event? Yeah, that, that's the IG3 event, yeah. Okay. So that one's actually kind of painful, but I really think that if Clonshell didn't kill lion, then it's gonna take more powerful meta than that to really push the clan back as a whole, because you know, people, Lion players have been finding ways around it, like the attachment decks are becoming less popular. We're even doing more of the naked thing now. So the big unique deck, even though the the uh, personalities are expensive, is that um, you're still basically running a naked Lion deck, and you have the potential to get big swarms of dudes out there. And at that point, stuff like Claw and Shell and even uh, the new event is not really going to do all that much. So I'm actually pretty optimistic about Lion for the Empire War environment. I have to say I am too. Yeah, I think they were pretty firmly in second place on our boards for rankings of how the different clans were going to do in, in Empire at War. So uh, I guess a lot of people also still think that Lion are going to be up there. And they're right. I mean, anybody who... Well, I mean, no, nobody's... I, as far as I've seen on the site, nobody's been putting Lion very low. And, you know, that's... Yeah. that's that's just because of the facts. They always seem to pull through. Yeah. Well, I, no, no. Tr- Trevor, Trevor said that they're gonna suck. <laughs> well, actually, Trevor, Trevor was very nice to me. I met him for the first time today, and he he apologized for all the bad things that he said about Lion. He only stabbed once. <laughs> he he also he also wanted me to relay like he couldn't come here today, unfortunately, but he wanted me to relay the fact that he's really optimistic about the way that Mantis is going to be going, and that. He's just going to be disappointed in general if the managed player base doesn't come through and win the majority of the co-ties this season. 
So I mean, you know, he's 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 really looking forward to a good siege for Manus. I'm I'm really glad for him too. You you, you had a, a glitch in the uh, the faux commentary that there are no Cote in this environment. <laughs> okay, uh, well, but nice anyway. Job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about you, John? Anything noteworthy in Empire War that we missed? Or? I I don't know. I I tried a deck out of Outsider Keep. Um, I went over with it today. Dude, that box is good. I know the box is good, and... I want that box. The box is good, we just don't really... I don't know, it's... Maybe it's just... You don't, you don't the need the typicians. It, like, it's just good for cycle, and it's good to give plus... That's the thing, is that, you know, the, the scout box is horrible. And well, then, yeah, of course. And then your Taku Plains is basically useless if you're unopposed anyway, right? Because, right. like, the ability just reduces somebody's force, and personal honor doesn't matter too, too much if you're unopposed unless you're actually playing a battle maiden deck. So... I mean, theoretically, all those commander decks, you know, Field of the Winds is pretty good, but I actually think that all the commander decks that have been going up until now might do well to try out Outsider Keep. And that's precisely what I was trying to do today. Yeah. Um, I've had a commander follower deck built for a couple sets now, um, and it really got a boost with Moto Hunters. I mean, that's just a... That's, that's, it's draw card, bow guy. You really can't come complain about that. It's it's, it's good on a cavalry vehicle. On yes. infantry vehicle is not so good. I was thinking about putting it into line of followers, but you know, for eight gold, just you know, this this is the reason I didn't put Iron Gauntlet Brother Brothers in my line of followers deck is that for that much money, I need a kill action. Right. And bowing just bowing just ain't so good anymore. Yeah. It was early on in the arc, but now not so much. True, but. Bow a guy, draw a drawing draw a card. card. Re- drawing a card unopposed is great. Though. Yes. Yeah. And but the problem was I I don't know what. Um, I guess maybe the deck is too slow. I was playing caught unawares. Unfortunately, I didn't draw it. But I think I drew, drew it once where it actually mattered today. Um, and that was against you when we sat down and and it didn't really help all that much because <laughs> you still cleaned my clock that game. I got lucky um, in that game, though. Well, I mean, it, the the deck I played it probably six or seven times today, and and I was not successful with it once. Not saying that it, you know it's it's. Uh, go ahead and say it, Jay. You know you want to. Okay, it's because you suck. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, you should try sucking less, John. Yes, yeah. I am trying. <laughs> well, you know, it's it, I hadn't played it in a while, but um, it's. On paper, it looks like it should be a good stronghold. Um, it looks like Unicorn should get a good boost out of this set. But our personalities that we got in this set are just kind of all over the place. The tactician, the non-unique tactician is god-awful. He's like one for us. Yeah. And how much does he cost? What, five? Six. 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 Man, that's bad. It really is. There, there is no excuse to be printing that card. I guess they just needed to be able to say the Unicorn have another non-unique tactician. The cavalry tactician, rather, but he's just a complete waste of time. Well, that's why he's not in my deck. Yeah, well, well, I think you're probably... They, they want to avoid doing high-force cap tacticians, because, you know, we've seen what happens when you get too many of those in the past. Well, yeah. <laughs> and so they <laughs> were kind force. of trying to take it down on on the other end and, and just make a cheap, low-force guy. I mean, you you play a... You know, the Lion would have happily played with their, you know... Boxable uh, two, two force, force guy. He, you know he's not cav or anything. 
Well, he's also yeah, but he's just an overlay. Yeah, but being boxable in mine is also different from being boxable in Unicorn at the same time. That's true. Being boxable in mine means that your clan holding single-handedly buys your guy. It's like in Unicorn, it means that you know he's seven Goss guy. But uh, yeah, I mean, in comparing it to Lion, Lion get the seven gold blank tactician. He's got three force, and meanwhile, for one gold less, Unicorn only get one force in their guy. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like they tried to to over uh, over nerf that guy, and he just is worthless as a result. It's too bad, really, because I'd like to see Unicorn tacticians become a really viable theme on its own. It's just an interesting deck to me, but. It's just not going to happen, really, because design is afraid of the possibilities of becoming overpowered, which has not really been a problem that Unicorn have had to suffer so far in the in the arc, which is unfortunate because it's always bad when any clan is doing poorly in general. And you know, Scorpion was great because it picked back up, and uh, with any luck, with all the new uh, open face control stuff that Crane is getting, yeah. is that they might actually pick back up in this arc too, but. I don't really see Unicorn getting enough of a boost, and they may be at the bottom of the barrel again. But which is fine, because we had our day in Samurai. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy we, we, we won a lot. Well, Chagatai had his day in Samurai. And that's, oh, yeah. that's what's too bad, is that, well, you know, any legitimate Unicorn victories in Samurai is like, oh, well, yeah, you, know, four. you got to turn yeah. three Chags. It means you automatically won the game. And, yeah, that's true, but... <laughs> <laughs> but you know, <laughs> sometimes Unicorn actually earned their victories, and but people don't remember that because of poor Chagatai. They, they earned the victories they got after Chagatai. <laughs> that's true. That's definitely true. Um, yeah, I think the, the Crane open face control stuff has definitely made it really, really viable. Get the Crane deck. I played a tournament in Tampa recently, and there's a couple Crane open control decks there. Those are those are pretty rough matchups. Um, uh, I know you guys talk about Scorpion a lot last episode, or I felt like you talked about it a lot. Um, and well, For those who aren't totally meta, Kevin is responding to a, a complaint we got that we didn't talk about Scorpion enough. I, I, I honestly felt like, so. you, like you guys gave Scorpion <laughs> fair time. I'm not, and, but I wanted to say that the, the two cards that the ninja got, the, the Night Wardens, or Night Watchers, the Follower, yeah, and Smoke Cover, absolutely amazing in the Scorpion deck. It has made the Scorpion Ninja deck, like, one of my worst matchups for my TST deck. I, like, target their dude with my box ability. Like, oh, no, I'm following now. Doesn't work anymore. Yeah. If Ninja didn't have Scorpion Dishonor as, like, the match that they cannot win ever. Yeah. Ever, it's like, they would, they would be truly dangerous in the environment right now. And, but they're, they're going to win. Events they're going to win, you know, Cote's when the season comes up. Like, there's, I have no doubt about that because I don't think they've done so yet, have they? Have Squirt, have Ninja have won a major tournament yet? No, as far as you know. Okay, so no. but but they've gotten so many tools, and so they can just negate entire actions that you've taken now, and that's just ridiculously huge. No other, basically, no other clan can do that as well as the Ninja, and that's what wins games is making your opponent's cards completely worthless. Yeah, the, the Scorpion have. Two decks that were solid beforehand that in Ninja and Dishonor Control that got, you know, a couple of really good cards as far as Ninja goes and quite a few really good cards yes, for, yeah. for Dishonor. There's also actually they have a, a Magistrate Military Dishonor Switch Control deck out of SSK that works surprisingly well now. I, I've heard tales about it from Trevor. I haven't actually played against it yet, but it's, it's nice. scary. 
I'm kind of worried about. It's quite scary. Um, I'm not, because Scorpion players hate SSK and just won't play with them. They're not going to play them. What what might get played is the Kenzai, though, because they have the new box, which is very decent, and now they have their own cavalry tactician guy that they can put a weapon on and take any province they want. He almost made the cut in my deck. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, four-force cav tactician, that's that's what, you know, because four-force tact four, you're taking everything but Kravitz, well, you're taking everything but an A, obviously, but but yeah, unfortunately, the fact is that Scorpion Ninjas is own worst matchup with Scorpion Dishonor, right? and Scorpion Dishonor just makes Ninja kind of cry. Um, the other thing I really, really wanted to say is that you guys talked about Ultimate Sacrifice last podcast, and I think that card is awesome. It's the four focus value, zero cost strategy, discard another card, destroy a card without attachments. It just it never lacks for a good target ninety percent of the time. And it's just, especially great for decks that can utilize their discard pile in great ways. Like, you know, it's perfect for something like Mantis or even sometimes Lion or basically any deck that can recycle from the discard pile in any decent way is that you can pitch that follower who isn't helping you in the battle anyway and destroy sure. a guy and then get the follower back. And, yeah. You know, it's just. That's what I was saying earlier about yeah. the card in some of our discussions off mic. The fact that if you're running it in an attachment deck, it's a lot stronger than than just running in like a naked deck. Um, usually, it, you're not wanting to throw away another battle action with it to to kill a, just a, a card with no attachments. But if in that battle you're you've got your card draw engine going and you happen to pick up an attachment and you have no way to attach it, it it turns it it turns that attachment into something useful. Which, you know, if you're running 10 attachments-ish in a deck, you're probably going to draw one in a battle when you really don't want to. So, ultimate sack and something like that is great. I mean, the other really nice thing about it is it doesn't target off one of your personalities, so you can use it while everybody in your army's bowed. That's true. Um, which is just adds to, if you had to target an unbowed personality for it, it would probably not make the cut anymore. Um, and it's got four focus value. Yeah. I mean, it goes immediately slotted into my TST dueling deck. It just went in. Um, and I think almost every deck should probably be running that card. Okay. Well, Lord knows that I haven't had the chance to say anything at all about Empire at War. So I'm going to spend another hour. T- no? Okay. I guess we'll just go on to some other. No, you don't get a turn either. Nobody cares what you think, Jay. Sorry. Now it's time for the Strange Assembly history lesson of the day. What do you have for us, Evan? Yeah, so I remember you, there used to be this guy named Dakota Hachigoro, and you could uh, bring somebody Dakota in. Hachigoro? <laughs> Man, step back! <laughs> you people with your board keep and your bamboo harvesters. Back in my day, we didn't start with holdings in play. We didn't even start with holdings that you could get out of your deck. But the nice thing about that was back in those days, you didn't pay for holdings. They were all free. And they made you lose honor that you didn't care about. Heck, there was a stronghold that you could pay gold by paying your honor. Uh, back in the... Then again, there was no manis back then either. You used to call them your time of alliance. 
However, if you were buying a holding on your first turn, that meant you lost. Yeah, but you, you had legacy holdings, right? No, there was no, 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 no. there was no gifts and favors. No, no gifts and favors back then either. There was a time where you didn't even have legacy holdings. There was a time where you didn't even have get. Oh, and by the way, going second, you got no extra holding. <laughs> Although way back then, it wasn't set who went first and who went second. It was honor plus cut. I knew guys who played unicorn decks with nothing but fours in the fate deck because you cut your deck and added your starting honor I'm to say who went first. Screw that! I'm gonna touch your, take your initiative. Uh, take the who? No, yeah. that didn't exist either. <laughs> <laughs> Back when I started this game, there was none of this digging for a holding. There was none of this. Then again, back then, you're playing lion. You got you got one turn. You better bring out a guy, and he better be good, because I'm going to breach your etiquette, and you're not bringing guys out anymore. All this pay two more gold to get somebody in your clan to like you, that used to be an event. It was called Blood Money, and it came around probably about hmm, six or seven out of the 15 years ago. It's This game has changed a lot. You guys have no idea how good you have it. How long have you been playing? I've been playing for 13 years now. I started with uh, Crimson and Jade back in 97. 13 years? Yeah. I think I was in high school when you were playing. You probably were. I was, I was, I was nine years old, so I, I wasn't playing off of our back then. Uh, of course not. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> I've, I'm, I'm the old man. I've always been the dad. Whenever it's time to go to the hotel, okay, boys, better make sure you got everything packed. Go to the bathroom, because it's a long trip. <laughs> but you do have people around who have been playing L5R since they were in high school, like, 13 years ago. I mean, was that Twyman who made the comment? I realized I've been playing uh, L5R for more than half my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm but, quickly approaching that. Uh, give me another three or four years, and I'll be playing for half my life. I started when I was 13 years ago, 30, 24. So, yeah, never mind. I've got another deck before I... Oh, oh, look, it's the previously unannounced sixth member of the podcast today, Benjamin, who has the hiccups. Let me translate for you. Hey, old man, quit your yapping about back in the day. We don't want to hear that stuff. It's a new time. You're out of It's touch, my man. time. I'm you. Tell him to get off your lawn. <laughs> well, I... You notice when... You have to play a game and no. No, no, no you, got, you gotta do this. You be like, lawn? Back in my day, we didn't have lawns. Lawn. <laughs> there was the, well, there was the well manicured lawn. Lawn? Back lawn? Oh, lawn. That was a samurai day. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't that far back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lawn that was back in the day samurai. for you, wasn't it? Well manicured lawn. I remember the lawn. Oh, yeah. yeah. Lion, lion Honor. The Lion Honor deck. That was the best lion deck for a while. It was. Actually, Back in my day, the best lion deck was called LSD. It stood for <laughs> Lion Speed Deck. You bought a, the first turn, you bought a Matsugoi, or you didn't play. It was, oh, and back in my day, it was okay to get, it was easy to get a really good card first turn, because we only played with 30 in each deck. There was none of this 40-40 mess. We had 30 cards in each deck, which means you had a base, uh, you know, it was four out of 30 there was no border keep. So, yeah, now, now here's the question. Out of all of the changes that we've just mentioned, was any of them bad? Oh, absolutely not. I 
Going to 40 cards is great. Yes. Adding holdings is great. Yes. Going from legacy to border keep and stuff is great. Absolutely. Breach not existing is great. Agreed. <laughs> yes. Plus... Clan uh, swords that make your opponent lose six honor. Those were awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I played a deck with all six clan swords yeah. I, I, because I was an honor runner. Because not only did it not ma- did it make your opponent if they happened to match, but it also gave you four honor. It was but a you ten just, honor. You swing. just dropped it and they they fall off, but you still no, got it wouldn't honor. fall off. I could put a crane sword no, just, on any random guy. It'd just be a plus zero plus one. Yeah, it'd, oh. be, a, it'd be a it'd be a nine gold wakazashi. Right. Yeah, it's because unfortunately... Of course, if, you're, if it was the right one, it could be like a 34th guy. 34th, 30-chi guy. Yeah. It's because I was a low-rent player when I started playing an Emerald Edition, so, of course, the clan swords had already come and gone. I had the ancestral, ancestral sort of crab clan. Not the crab clan. Crab clan. Yes. Ancestral sort of crab clan. And, of course, I had that because it was yes. in the Battle of Aiden Pass. That's right. <laughs> No dragon sword for me. And then there were a bunch of people. Ooh, ooh, ooh! My my crab sword has the cool gold ring around it. Means it's original. <laughs> really? You're gonna do that? Yeah. I have a pre-imperial. Ooh! I think the swords were pre-imperial. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I do though, and they I, weren't. Yes, I remember when the way you could tell what set of card was was by the border. Oh, oh thank God, that's gone. No, I think that is one of the. I think that is one of the worst changes from back in the day. I loved having just it was like an extension of the artwork. Oh, you can have funky borders, but you can't like have that as the only set identifier. You can't tell half the time. Uh, if you play the game, long some of them are really do. distinctive, but yes. some of them are not at all. Well, all of them were distinctive when it was FRPG. I've seen some of the old cards though. Some of those old cards were just outright ugly. Some of the artwork. Some was of the art was bad, man. It's like I compared that to the stuff that's coming out now, and I just feel like it's an enormous improvement. It is, yes. The artwork I will agree with. Ooh, we could talk about personality stats. Back in the day, I paid twelve gold for a three, <laughs> three, yes. three, four, six chi guy. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. You want to see something entertaining? Go look at Heroes of Rogugan, which isn't oh, yes. all that old. All of the guys there cost 13, and they're all like four, four, six G people with no abilities. Yes. <laughs> it's great. I was going to say, they, they had to have some kind of a fantastic ability if you're paying that much. <laughs> no, they were just, oh, no. 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 <laughs> that, when they call that one a direct, that was not even a direct-to-player set. That was a vanity set. Nobody played with those cards. There were a couple hey, of cards. I played that, with the Nuzumi <laughs> Strongholds. Uh, yeah, that's true. You played with Warren's. That was like the one card that anyone ever played with. Of course, because it was the only rattling stronghold for a yeah. while. So, yeah. But nobody played their personalities out of that set. Because you're talking about a, an arc where everything, you were still had all the free gold. Everything was quick, fast, cheap. That's back when rattling were, was being yeah. played out of a Phoenix box in one Gen Con. That's why uh, Nasseru hit the throne. Wait a minute, rattling used to be a clan? Yeah. <laughs> you whippersnapper. <laughs> you at least had to know that. Apparently they also had Naga, Monk, and Ninja as separate clans. Oh yes, yeah. Monk, and Tatori's army. Tatori's army, uh, Spirit. We'll not talk about them. Um, We're not allowed to talk about that. You're not even allowed to use the name of the expansion, remember? No, you're not. Okay, I won't. Uh, There's some those Nagas, anyway? Where did they go? They went back to sleep. They're in the Shinnaman. What part of it didn't get burned down by the spider on the way out? So what's this set we're not supposed to talk about? No, there's some kind of legal whatnot with Spirit Wars. I don't... 
the set came out right when, right when it was transitioning, but yes. I don't know if it's a Watsy AEG thing or if there's some other legal thing, but there's some kind of legal thing with Spirit Wars, which is why whenever you read an official reference to it in an AEG thing, it's always called, like, the War of Spirits or something like oh, that, really? and why they, they can't make a detailed time period source book for it like they did for Hidden Emperor and the Four Winds. Huh. Some kind of, I, okay. I don't know. I had no idea, although I do remember those days. During that eight, I think it was like eight-month, yeah. one-year hiatus, that's what, I mean, Clan War was all the rage around here anyway. Clan War, the miniatures game. Yeah, then Games awesome. Workshop killed it. Actually, the fact that the card, for me personally, it was the fact that the card game came back and I went, oh, I can play six or seven games during the Saturday that I'm out, or I can play one I'll go back to playing cards now. That's one big, one big long one. Yes, it was one big long one. Okay. Turn games were two and a half hours. Okay. Tournament games were two and a half hours. Tournament games are the long ones. In Clamor, it was a two and a half hour round, and usually in that two and a half hours, you moved in. That sounds really exciting. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's ever been such a thing as a good tournament for a miniatures game, but okay, that's enough grumpy old man history yeah, and right. legal nonsense. Well, one of the big design innovations for Samurai Edition was the introduction Celestial of... Celestial Edition. Yes. Whatever we're playing! <laughs> you're, you're still back in the old times, Chris. We're talking about... The, new story. the hot new! You're still recovering from story time with John. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, yes. For Celestial Edition was the introduction of themes, these sort of defined aspects of each of the... The clans, four per clan, cards tend to slot into those those different themes. And so, since we know that the design team really likes them and is presumably therefore going to use them for Yoda Tai Edition or whatever comes out next. I can only have a set, man. I'm <laughs> for the Yoda Tai Edition. Yeah, the next <laughs> set has been Yoda Tai Edition for like six years now. <laughs> no, no, no. For, for a while it was uh, Platinum Edition. Yeah. And. Then, uh. Don't recall. Talk of Shugenja edition Sh- Shogun after the edition Samurai. For, uh, I honestly yeah, think the, the next edition is going to be Alphabet Yellow. <laughs> what? Purple? But, themes. Looking at themes, how do you. How well do you think the themes have accomplished their, their purpose? See, at, at first, it was not good. Like, you know, they, they laid out the four themes for each clan in the beginning, including, uh, Five for Lion, even. And uh, the theory was, you know, according to them, is that they really wanted to have everything supported, and they wanted players to be able to field competitive decks in every theme, and that, like, everybody would be in this kind of perfect, happy little world. And I think you're kind of setting the bar a little high there. I mean, I mean theoretically, it may be there's a competitive deck for each theme, but I don't think that anyone would seriously thought that they were going to manage to put together... 36 different competitive deck types. Well, at least decently competitive, because you can say for certain themes early on that they were absolutely unplayable. Like, until Empire War, you know, I've I've seen a couple people try to do Scorpion Kenzai, and it just fell apart at the scenes every single time. And, you know, now they're decent, but, you know, I think that, in theory, the whole themes thing is good, but 
at the same time, when you look at the most uh, competitive decks so far in Celestial Arc, is that if I had to pick the top three, I guess I would say uh, Naked Lion and uh, LSC and I guess United in general have been kind of the three most common themes. And maybe that was more early on than now. But none of those were based on any kind of a theme whatsoever. And so maybe maybe design wanted that. You know, I really can't speak for them. But I guess just in general, it's it's only now that they're starting to come into their own. Like that Kenzai are really good and that Crane can actually play a decent, you know, Imperial favor control thing now, even though theoretically they should be able to do that from the beginning of the art. So I think that there's room for improvement there. And I'm not opposed to the idea in general. I just think that there were a lot of problems early on. Well, part of that is just the fact that it's early on. When you discuss, you know, here are the themes for Celestial Edition, and then the only expansions that you have are Glory of the Empire, uh, Death of Coden, and the base set, your base set should be pretty generic. Um, not only for, you know, sealed play and draft and that kind of thing, but also... Yes, you're supporting all of these different themes, but in a base set of 500 some odd cards, it's kind of hard to, to support 36 different themes, uh, as, as far as, you know, yes, there's some crossover there. There's, you know, crab commanders and line commanders and unicorn commanders. We'll print some commander cards. But it's, it, when you have a limited card pool, it's really hard to design for that. But as you come out, farther from that base set. Uh, Path of Destroyer, not so much. You really couldn't tell. There are a lot of pretty, again, generically good cards. But then with Harbinger and Plague War, and especially now with Empire of War, you're, you're, I mean, with Empire of War, there are certain cards I'm looking at as a singles dealer. I'm going, okay, this is the Berserker card. What else does it do? Uh, nothing. It's the Berserker card. I mean, it, they're very theme-specific. So now that you're expanding the card base of your argument that it was bad to start with, I think just in a limited card pool is kind of hard to, to pull that off. I'm not even completely sure that, that Glory of the Empire was designed with themes in mind. I mean, as mm -hmm. far as I know, Glory of the Empire was just your, their, their kind of standard expansion at that point. It was the last expansion of Samurai, right? Uh, it, yes. It was yeah. the last expansion of Samurai, but the way they, that they, they designed stuff, now. they would have known when they were designing Glory what they were planning on doing for Samurai. I think if you look back at Glory, I think Glory actually hits all of the themes. I mean, I think if you go back and look at the personalities in Glory, you actually have the whole, you know, you get at least one guy for each theme mostly. I mean, there are a couple of oddballs, like Mantis Economic Warfare didn't even exist. I mean, right. it was a theme. There wasn't even anything in the base set for it. Right. So, but I guess I think, Evan, you're, I think you're shortchanging the themes a little bit in, in two ways. First, I think that a couple of the decks that you identified actually do have thematic sort of components. You know, if you look at the most successful United dueling deck is basically a crab hero deck, and that is a thing. Dueling isn't a stated official part of that, and, and Last Step Castle is primarily drawing on, on magistrates and then dragon sort of goofy theme. Of, of dueling, which was not supposed to be a standalone theme. I, I don't know that I really like that particular implementation with Crane and Dragon having these pseudo themes that were well, hanging out. That's there. another issue is that sometimes, let's like you, 
we say that there were 36 themes, but there were really less than that because there were, for example, there are several plants that have the theme of heroes. I guess there's what, I guess maybe only uh, Lion and Crab for that. Are there any other heroes? Unicorn. Well, but that's not a theme. That's not a theme. I guess I guess Commander is a better example because you got Mantis, Unicorn, um, and Lion, Lion and Crab Commanders. Right. But at the same time, when you take something like that, um, a, a card that is good for a Crab Commander is not necessarily going to be good for a Lion Commander. And that's, I think the best example of something like this is Heroes, where if you look at what most of the Hero Tech is, is that a lot of it is to benefit one card. And like, really, it seems like Hero Cards have been designed with Crab in mind, because back in Samurai Edition, like, they pretty much were the main heroes in the, in the card game. And so hero, hero cards are like, you save your guy from dying, you allow your guy to unbow at the end of the battle and get plus three force, or, you know, while your guy is alone, he gets so-and-so bonuses. But none of that really applies to Lion Heroes because, in general, they're all pretty much as wimpy in terms of force as any other Lion, as any other Lion personality. So, I mean, that that's another issue, and that's something they can continue to work on, um, is that they can think about the fact that a commander card is not necessarily going to be good for all plants. And they've already had this issue with scouts and the fact that scouts are used in both military and honor decks, and they've already had to kind of split those apart. And even in uh, Empire War, there were three scout cards, and two of them were honor-based. For, for scouts, that's always been a, uh, a thing. And I don't think that that's really an issue. I mean, there, are, there have always been... Clearly, this is a crane scout card because it says gate to honor at the end of it. <laughs> right. And the, I think the biggest divide of what you're talking about is monks because you have this is a dragon monk card because it says tattooed. This is a spider monk card because it says lose some honor. Right. And, right. and I don't think that, or, that's even a problem because the point is just that for each clan, for its variation of that theme, it's supposed to get one card. I think a more relevant issue is that there are a couple of themes that that can have some broader issues, and, and you identify one of them, which is heroes, where the general sorts of things that hero cards do sync up better with Crab than with Lion, because they're all about making this one gigantic unit, and it's not something so simple as, oh, I can make a, a defensive gain to honor hero card and call it for this theme, and then I can make a based on high force hero card and call it for that theme. Uh, another one is is Unicorn Scouts. Unicorn, which, exactly. Unicorn Scouts, they, there are barely any Scout cards that I can think of that sync up particularly well with that, especially because of the mere fact that Scouts relies on recons, and when you're a Unicorn, you don't want your opponent to know where you're going to go when you declare an attack that turn. And so some of these things are like uh, um, like Strategic Strike, where you know if you have recon this province, you can attack some of the followers. Well, you know, Unicorn aren't going to get as much use of that because they're going to recon that province and everybody defends there, and then you've lost a lot of the innate advantage that you're getting by playing that clan in the first place. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that themes in general have been a failure. I think largely they've been good. It's just that I think AG can do well to learn from some of this stuff for the next arc because if I had to guess they're going to continue this as long as all the personnel at AG stays the same in that, you know, I think that things have been a decent success. I just hope they learn from some mistakes. Well, I also think that there are some specific themes that have not panned out the way we would want them to, like Commander and Scout in particular. Um, I have not seen a really, really strong 
scout deck out there of any strife. Um, I mean, I realize that the Crane Scout defensive on his deck. They were decent is, for a while. Is, 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 is good against military, but it, it seems to have a really, really bad matchup between No, wait, no, Crane Scouts was, was great. It Mountain Shadow Dojo, it had to get a rat in there. No? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We're, we're getting it's back into reminiscing. <laughs> yeah. No. Actually, if you talk about Scouts, I mean, Goblin did win Gen Con last year, but it and had almost nothing to do with the fact that any of them were Scouts. It was more due to the fact that they were Goblins who resurrected each other. Yeah, and, well, and, and they had military assessment. I, I think That's more, yeah. probably more germane to the particular scout thing is that there actually were crab scout decks that did well during Kote season. And I think at least one Kote was won by a crab scout deck. <laughs> yeah, certainly I didn't see anything of that this summer. Yeah, and then the commander theme seemed to be really, really contingent upon having followers. If you don't have followers in there, essentially is no commander stuff. It's like, you know, hold is out there. But really, that's not even played that much anymore because no. the main commander cards you're looking at now Deadly are... Deadly Orders. Deadly Orders and Fire on My Command are probably yes. going to be the two most common commander cards. And with those two cards have absolutely zero value if you don't have followers well, on the table. See, I mean, I think we're, we're kind of getting a bit of feel now from what is the value of or, or not of having themes in the game. Now we're just talking about, oh... Did some particular theme actually end up hitting or missing well, as far as getting the right card quality? My, my, my point is, is that for the clans we got, those themes that didn't pan out, a lot of those players feel like their themes aren't working, like they, their themes aren't, aren't being developed enough. I mean, you hear Trevor talk about his scout deck and how he wishes he could play the scout deck. He wishes it were good, but it's not working for him. Yeah, well, I, I think it's helpful when people talk about that to sort of go back to what the situation would be if there weren't themes. If you would have just a mishmash of cards that were generally designed with some kind of vague concept in mind, and if those didn't gel into whatever the deck was, you just didn't get to play anything. I mean, we're talking about, for Mantis, yes, it's, oh, they their commanders have worked out, Thunder and Scouts haven't really been that good, but you know, they actually have one functional deck, and that's that's part of the design point of themes. I, I think it's broader than what you described earlier, Evan, is, oh, trying to have a competitive deck for each theme. Part of the purpose of the themes is to kind of lay a solid groundwork for different ways for the clan to develop as the arc goes on. So when you're slotting in later cards, if for example, one sort of deck gets too strong, you end up being able to, you, you have somewhere to put new cards. You can get, okay, my commander deck is really, really good, and so I really can't give it anything else, so in future sets, we'll try to pump this clan up and give them something new and different to play and something that they're going to want to buy the set for that's not just taking their existing deck and making it problematic. And, and now that's why I think something that has been a breakdown in sort of theme system is the other deck that you mentioned, Evan, which has been Lion, which really did just become this, I'm going to play with the good personalities deck, and which is the sort of thing that the themes are, I think at least, supposed to try to avoid, is now all of a sudden making it really hard to print cards for Lion. I mean, and that's eventually going to happen for the other clans too, is that the... Entire concept of themes is going to begin to fall apart 
when we're going to have enough generic cards, like you look at some of the cards that have come out in Plague War and in Empire of War, um, like I take a Fearless Defense as an example of, like that is theoretically a card that is going to be great in Commander decks, but it has nothing to do with Commanders. Like any, any deck that runs attachments can play that. And I'm starting to feel like, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I used to want to, like, have all this commander tech in a, fo- in a lion follower deck, and I've been trying to kind of playing around with that, but I actually, I went between that and just going back to the generic, you know, lion followers with a bunch of good guys and do some battle actions, and that is always performing better. And I feel like, you know, ideally is that if lion commanders was going to be that theme, then they would gel the best with followers as opposed to just taking the random views, because... I really think design wanted there to be these specific decks out there rather than, as we said, you know, Lion or LSC or United that just kind of are a mishmash and, I don't know, not as interesting. Yeah, well, one of the things I've noticed is that because a lot of the generic cards are really, really good, some of your theme-specific cards don't don't come off as well. Um in particular, like timely save, you know, that you use your book cards. I would never run that over, say, Kami and Leech. I mean, there's always going to be issues with that, but certainly there has to be some draw in to play the theme. You have to get enough out of sticking within your theme to actually make it, it worth it. And yeah, that requires a, a proper balancing of theme specific cards and of other generic things. I mean, one of the reasons why I mean, Commanders I think hasn't gelled as much as a as a theme is not just, I mean, there have been some solid Commander cards, but it's just that followers are, the followers have actually been so good and don't care. In exactly. Case, they care about Commanders. You know, there's no reason to push you into Commanders from the Commander-style attachment. Or or Kensei, or, or Web Kensei with weapons. You had a well, in Plague War, it's just, okay, there's just these really good weapons. Why do I care about, about Kensei? Yeah, I mean, like, for example, the deck that Case played at Gen Con, you know, it happened to have a few Kensei, and I guess it ran, you know, I may, I may be a little bit off, but I think it ran one Kensei-specific card, which was the Death Negation one. Hundredfold cut? Yeah, hundredfold cut. Uh, so <laughs> I, 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 I said it was the best card in the set, right? <laughs> <laughs> So I ran that, but I mean, really, it's like, you know, I doubt that it was ever a huge deal that he had two weapons on any of these guys. Like, you know, it was good because the weapon's not really the tip of the Kensai. But I guess, ultimately, I think that the themes have worked very well at what they were designed for, that even though they haven't been perfect at just eliminating the random generic mishmash deck that can make it hard to design future card for, they have pushed it in the right direction, and you have a position, I, and I know for my clan, you've got Last Step Castle, but you've also got other very specific things for people to, to push cards into. You know, you can have just a Kensei card, you can have just a Monk card without having to worry about whether or not Dragon's going to be able to take that and put it in the, the Last Step Castle deck and make that, you know, more of a monstrosity. And I think, I think there's a, a solution that I mean, it's not a complete solution, but they can really do a, a better job at making, like, they just try to make the theme-specific cards more powerful than the generic cards, which hasn't been their practice up until now. Like, you know, they say a card like Superior Mobility, which has 
you know, a couple of ridiculous actions on it. But, you know, you could make that a car that had to do with a specific theme, and I think it would be better for the environment because, you know, we're really, as, as this arc goes on, and it's going to go on longer than the previous arcs have, is we're going to see a lot of decks, especially the military decks, I think, that have fate decks that are really, really similar to each other by the time all these generic cards that are better than the theme-specific cards come out. Like, if they just reverse the power level of those, I think it would be a step in the right direction. And there's, there's a flip side to that as well, which is because each theme only has so many cards, if you just make all the theme-specific cards flat-out better than all the generic sort of cards, then all of a sudden your theme-specific deck becomes a pre-built thing where you're just putting in exactly, you know, the six, six theme-specific battle actions. So, I mean, I think there's a balance in the other direction with that. You can't just entirely ignore the generic stuff, especially meta sort of effects. You need to, when you're designing a set or an environment, you have to have built-in meta to sorts of things. And so if you are worried, you know, you bow can get too good or kill can get too strong or move home or, or dishonor those sorts of things. And when you're building effects that, that counter that sort of thing or, or even a proactive sort of thing where if you end up having, you know, too much, you know, anti-bow, anti-bow, and so you need to have a, a sort of an outlet for that in the meta of move home, that doesn't work as well when you're cramming it into a theme. And some, so some of that utility stuff needs to go in a generic spot. Well, and, uh, yeah, just to put a completely different spin on this, says the mercenary, you <laughs> kind of need to have some generic good cards in each set so that you can do well with moving product. I mean, if, if the if the hot card is just commander-specific or just scout-specific, you're not going to have us retailers going out and buying cases of it because it's not going to... Well, not even retailers, but players as well. I know there was a time when I only played Dragon, I mean, ever. Right. And so I would split boxes with people where you just kind of divide them up into, oh, here's the Dragon cards, here's the Unicorn cards, here's the whatever. I mean, and there were going to be some number of generic cards that, that still get split out. But yeah, I guess if you eliminate all of them, that could cause some sort of monetary issue. Right. But I think there have been some pretty vicious design pulls this set, clan themes and the guidances, and I don't think those have worked perfectly, but considering this is the first time they've been doing this, I'm willing to give them a little bit of slapping. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not really trying to criticize them too heavily. I'm just. I'm just saying that there have been, you know, a couple of missteps, but I think that they can easily be rectified for the next arc. And you know, as this arc continues, obviously the themes that haven't gotten enough, you know, proper treatment should hopefully get it. Like I, I hope that Mantis scouts and Unicorn scouts have decent decks by the end of the arc. You know, maybe that's a little bit too much to hope for. But I mean, I, I just, you know, variety is what keeps the game great. But you know, lots of other card games have the problem of, you know, in Magic, in certain editions, is that, like, you know, the blue deck or the black deck is just going to be running Supreme, and everybody's going to be playing that. And, you know, what's great about all five R is that you do have nine clans that, you know, theoretically all have competitive deck types. And if you even have, you know, four or five deck types within that clan that have the, you know, have a chance at winning a major, major tournament like the Kotai, or world championship or something like that. That's what really makes the game exciting and what keeps a lot of different people interested. 
Well, and I, I do think that, you know, you said something earlier about, oh, we're going to stay with the same thing because we're just going to have the same, we're going to stay with themes because we have the same personnel. I think the design team right now is actually very good at identifying what hasn't gone completely right and kind of fixing that. I mean, everybody says that, you know, they hate Lotus, and but, you know, they, the design team right now recognizes that Lotus didn't work how they wanted to work. People didn't like it like they thought they were going to like it. And they realized they need to not do that now. So I think that, I mean, I have a lot of faith in the current design team to actually be able to identify and, and, and correct problems and improve on what's going right. So I, I think that, I think the themes have worked and I think they'll work even better probably the second time around. So I'm looking forward to seeing them in whatever they, in the village edition, however they do it. Yeah, I'm optimistic about it too. And, uh, I mean, I, I think that Brian has been very vocal, especially when, you know, we all know that a lot of L5R players like to complain a lot. And, you know, I think that at certain points in time, the complaints have been legitimate. And I think that so far, Brian's been good about addressing those either with, you know, his own, his own commentary or with, you know, kind of shifting design to make those underused themes more playable. Like, you know, Empire War is a good example of how we really are seeing Scorpion kind of become decent and stuff like that. So I really do have faith in the design team that they'll, uh, they'll get out the kinks of the system. So I think the next arc will be even better than this one. Okay. Oh, what? What's that, Benjamin? We have to stop this segment so that you can eat. Okay. I guess we'll do that. This is the Strange Assembly News Desk for October 31, 2010. There's only one announcement today, and that's that Patis in Madrid has reached level 20, the first and only Stronghold store to do so. In tournament news, the Obsidian Championships was won by Tim Wells with Lion, points going to the Empire. He chose for Daigatsu Hitako to remain the Obsidian Champion. At the tournament, Eric Devlin and the L5R players again showed their commitment to charity, and the food drive at the event brought in over 4,200 cans, with points earned by Chris Root, Mark Armitage, Danny Crane, and Andrew Ornatov. The Nuremberg Level 10 event was won by Christoph Fenzel with Dragon, who kept the points and chose Tomori Kuroko to join the Sanctified Ones. The winner's choice event in Vidor, Texas, was won by Douglas D. with Spider, who gave his points to Jigoku and chose the Fist of Iron keyword. The winner's choice in Poland was won by, and I apologize for killing your name, Brzemek Walek Kowalczyk with Spider, points to Jigoku, who chose the Immortal keyword. The winner's choice in Rotterdam was won by Benny Calf with Lion, points to the Empire, the Head Librarian keyword chosen. At the Winner's Choice event in Tampa, Daryl Haddock won with Crab. He kept the points for his clan and chose the Blessed of Insert Fortune Here with a request for Hida Quesada, the Fortune of Persistence. In Thunder Bay, Eric Gardner won the Winner's Choice event with Mantis and kept the glory points for his clan, choosing the Hoth Naga keyword. The Winner's Choice in Colorado Springs was won by Unicorn, piloted by Greg Wright. He kept the points for his clan and chose the moon-blessed keyword. The name-a-card event in Dublin, Ireland, was won by David Russell with Scorpion. 
There have been three fictions since last you heard from us. The first is The March by Brian Yoon, published October 16, 2010. Baishi Keirei made his way to the Yogo Towers, where he met with Shishiro Tosin, daimyo of his family. The acrobat brought disturbing news, reporting not only his failure to kill Paneki's disgrace, but also that the creature seemed to have abilities beyond those of the normal plague zombies, including the power to lead its fellows. Keirei opined that the disgrace was leading a horde of undead into the Lion Provinces. Shortly thereafter, Magistrate Bayushi Himaru made his way to the Lion border, where he was met by a group of Ekoma wardens led by Ekoma Turukan. The Scorpion tried in vain to convince the Lion to recommend shifting an army to defend against the oncoming horde, but failed in his task when he refused to tell the Lion why they should move an army. Turokin did, however, go to scout the area, only to find Zombie Paneki's horde assaulting the village. The Lion Patrol retreated to spread the word. Another Scenes from the Empire fiction was published on October 24, 2010, this one written by Rusty Prisk and Sean Carmen. In the first section, titled Secrets of Power, Seppin Tashime and Kuni Ieto lead a force of Imperial Legionnaires, including Miramoto Tabushi, to a monastery in the Shinomen, where Tashime hoped to find and destroy the Grey Woman. Instead, he found the Quelserat the former advisor to the shogun, who was assigned to the, observe the spider, the Quelsareth reported that Daigatsu's efforts against Kalima could be jeopardized from within the Dark Lord's own ranks. In the second section, titled The Cost, Ikoma Noda visits the Lion Infirmary along with Kitsu Takakura. Noda flashes back and forth between the infirmary and the battle against the God Beast reliving the grievous wounds suffered by Akoto Iona, a Hohei named Soromachi, and others. In the third section, titled Unmoving, the Phoenix Master of Air, Isawa Mitsuko, accompanied by Inquisitor Isawa Serizawa, pays a visit to Tomori Shimura. Mitsuko was ushered into the daimyo's presence by Tomori Kuroko, where the Master of Air once again called for the execution of Agasha Kyoso. Mitsuko noticed a young female scribe recording their words as Shimura tossed his usual insults at the phoenix and refused the request. On the way out, Serizawa referenced the old man who had been acting as Shimura's scribe. Elsewhere, but not far away, Kakita Kenshoin wondered at the Master of Air's ability to pierce the Obsidian Hand's illusions. In the third fiction, Questions of Loyalty, published on October 31, 2010, and written by Nancy Sauer, we see the results of both the Emerald and Obsidian Championships. At the Emerald Championships, Shishoro Jimin uses the guise of Bayushi Nomen to gain a different view on those competing to join his retinue. The Emerald Champion spoke with Doji Tajihi, Daidoji Yorio, and Suzumi Sahara, known, otherwise known as Daigatsu Sahara. Back in his tent, Jimin then heard from Mia Masatsoko, who reported that no Kakita had arrived to compete, a fact which quite flustered the Emerald Champion. As the competition began, Sahara did well, noting that many of the competitors did not really seem to be trying. Choosing brute strength over grace, the spider won a place among the Emerald Magistrates. Elsewhere, Daigatsu Kenpeki sat with his mother and father, 
quite annoyed at having to drink jade petal tea once again, which the Dark Lord was giving to all of the tainted spider children as Kalima's hold on Jigoku grew, and with it, her hold on those who bore the taint. Nearby, Daigatsu Shimreki spoke with Daigatsu Isoruko, and the former crane indicated that he would not be competing for the Obsidian Championships that day. The undead spider did compete and did well, defeating all who came before him, except for Yoritomo Hotaku, who, having watched the entire proceeding, had learned Itsuruko's tricks and was able to kill the commander. That's it for the Strange Assembly News Desk. For October 31, 2010, Happy Halloween! Alright, so somebody on our forum asked about how many holdings they should run your deck. And I did some math, and we have a couple good players here. Uh, and the short answer is basically 13 to 15, depending. There's a couple extraneous circumstances that you can, you can modify that for. Um, if you're playing Blitz, which means you're crazy, uh, you can run 8. If you're playing really, really heavy attachment deck and you're generally going forest first, you can run up to 17. But that's, that's the limit. That, I would that 17 is a hard, hard top. If you're running seven, more than 17 holdings in your deck, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> um, uh, but my general rule of thumb is 18 to 19 cards are not people. So whatever that th 13 to 17, whatever that is. You're taking out regions and events. And right. Celestials. And Celestials. Right. But, yeah, uh, sitting down with the numbers, um, basically, you want to run enough holdings to ensure that you don't get a bad start. Okay? Fine and sure. Uh, to, to guarantee a reasonable probability of not getting a bad start. So, this is, this is arguable, okay? Basically, what I define as a good start for most decks is at least two holdings. Okay? Preferably, one of them would be a clan holding or some other tree-producing holding. But unless you're getting two holdings at the beginning of your game, you're off to a really bad start. Okay? So looking at the uh, the odds, if you're running 13 holdings, you're, run, you're running about a 4% chance of getting a bad start. You're assuming that the person is willing to use both border keeps? Right? Assuming that you're... Yeah. Okay. Assuming you're, you're border keeping to make sure that you get two holdings, at least. Okay. Okay, if you're running 13 holdings, you're going to get a 4% chance of getting a bad start. That's that's the way the math breaks down. If you run 12 holdings, you run a 6% chance of getting a bad start, which is 2% increase. But there's a big difference between 4% and 6% when you sit down and actually play. Yeah, it's also, depending on how you look at it, it's a 50% increase in the chances of yes, getting a Yes, yes it is. Okay, if you run 14 holdings, it goes down to about 2.5%. And I think 14 holdings is about your, your sweet spot. If you run 15 holdings, it goes down to about 1.6%. And if you run, if you're crazy and you run 17 holdings, uh, or if you're playing Lion and you run 17 holdings, uh, it goes down to a 0.6% chance of getting a bad start. And yet it's still happening to me multiple times somehow. And it will still happen. <laughs> bad starts will happen regardless of how good your odds are. You know why that is? It's because you didn't listen to our other podcast and you were keeping some random dorky dude in there instead of flushing <laughs> yes. all four. 
Yeah, this, this is... I do not do that. This is assuming that you border keep aggressively. You don't hold on to that dude in your province when you've just got one yeah, pro- I, I'm hold. assuming this is... You're, I, I'm assuming that we're assuming that you're border keeping anything that isn't a holding. Right. And it sounds like these numbers do not, or do they take into account the possibility that you end up with, like, two border villages? Uh, these do not take into the possibility that you end up with two border villages. Um, these are just rough calculations. There, there are a lot of extenuating circumstances. There are border villages, which cost four, which means you can't buy two of them. There are famous bazaars, which you might actually see another holding when you buy a famous bazaar. Um, That's one thing I was going to say, is that even if you need to run a few more holdings, but you're worried about getting you know, uh, gold flood by the end of the game, is that you know, famous bazaar is always an option out there that I often see players not really using as much as they could, because... I mean, that, that can be huge in late game if you have one province left. Yeah. And you need to buy to the end of that turn to have a defense. Um, then running Famous Bazaar can be great. Yeah. Famous Bazaar will modify your odds. It'll make it so you have a better start with less holdings. Or make sure that you can see more people later on in the game if you're running more holdings. But uh, there are so many good holdings out there anyways. That that, that's the thing is that, you know, there's a lot of holdings with really attractive abilities in some right. places. Yeah, it's not like the old days where there were no holdings. Right, in Samurai Edition, everybody was around Famous Bazaar. Because right. the holdings really weren't nearly as good in Samurai Edition as they have been in this one. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a Phoenix military player, when I build CT decks, it's really hard for me to choose between. I'm going to run my, my three clan holdings. I'm going to run three border villages or three production equivalents. I'm running a cavalry deck as clan states. And then I have to choose between whether or not I want to run war encampments, rich coffers, or wooden barricades. And I can't run all three of those in the complete supply set, because that would give me way too many holdings. Um, and then, of course, you're going to want to run the standard utility holdings, like Traveling Peddler, Spendable Resources, Coda's Grave, or County House. You know, some mixture of those those cards. And for some decks, you want to toss in Oyuseido or other meta holdings. Right, or, or Deeds and Words, depending on if you're running right. an honor or dishonor deck. But yeah, the hard, hard rule there is, unless you're playing a really, really attachment heavy deck and can guarantee that you're going first, 15's your max. Okay? And I'd say that especially if you're running a deck with no attachments, um, I would really say that 14 is the one to aim for. Like, you know, Ryan, Ryan's Lion deck, you know, obviously this is a while ago, but I think that was, that really had the ideal mix is that it ran 14 holdings with three famous bazaars and so, he would always have a reliable flow of personalities. So uh, if you're running a, a deck like that, uh, I think you would aim for 14. And 15, if you're going to have a few low-cost spells here and there. And, you know, more than that is really only going to be for very particular decks. So while we're on topic, uh, another thing I want to talk about here was Doubt in Mind, specifically. Uh, at the very, very beginning of the arc, I know a lot of people have very, very strong reactions to Diamond Mind. Like, it's amazing. I never had to worry about it. Uh, I can never afford it. Yeah, if you're playing Lion, it's never an option. I don't particularly like Diamond Mine as a holding, uh, especially right now. Um, and I've got some particularly good reasons for it. Uh, my first one is that you can get a better start if you're running with Border Villages and your three producer. You can start off a turn where you get two three production holdings and producing six, especially if you're not playing Lion. Uh, if you're going to run Diamond Mines, that usually the reason why you want to run Diamond Mines is so you can get that five gold in your first turn. Most people will buy the Diamond Mine 
first turn. And I think that in the right circumstances, you can get off to a, a much better start with other forms. Um, my second reason is it's really hard to buy down a gun mine later in the game. Uh, if you're staring at a six, six gold cost holding and a guy costs about the same amount, guy always wins for me. Yeah. Almost always. Yeah, I don't. Unless you just have a bunch of extra gold, are you ever buying a diamond mine late game? And usually, once you get into the mid game, the only time you're buying holdings is if you've got gold left over, and it's a lot easier to have two gold left over than than six. And it, to tell you the truth, is that I think most of the decks that ran diamond mine early in the arc were the ones with very expensive, very big personalities like Oni and Berserker, and they both have better options now. Like Oni have uh, have their two for three holding. The Spider Cultist. Yeah, the Spider Cultist. And um, and Berserker have enough utility holdings that are more useful to them anyway. I think that the, the most play I saw for Diamond Mine outside of Phoenix with, you know, open on Bow Holding Girl <laughs> was in decks that were just chock full of guys who cost exactly seven. Yeah. And so they were just making the play to have as often as possible that I can buy two of my guys, second turn always. Yeah, on a pretty consistent basis. Right, I mean, that's... I, I run Diamond Mine in one of my TST decks, and that's why I do it, is because most of my guys cost seven. It greatly increases... I mean, yes, there is the possible better start of two, three producers, but because my guys cost seven, I really want first turn to get five gold out of that first turn, so that second turn I have five gold and six gold to get two guys. Right. And so if I have Diamond Mine and Clan Holdings... I can much more easily run a bunch of the utility holdings that only produce two. Yeah, that is the the, the one condition where I think it's appropriate to play that in mind. If you have a lot of seven gold cost guys in your in clan, um, or you know, I don't think there are any five gold cost guys out of clan that are worth playing. But uh, if you've got a lot of seven gold cost guys, then Diamond Mine is basically a uh, dedicated personality buying holding. That, but it's also one of the problems with Diamond Mine is that if you're running like an attachment deck or something similar to it, it's a dedicated personality buying holding. It's very hard. It's, Diamond Mine gives you also awkward gold. Like it gets very hard to split it up. If you've got an eight gold cost attachment, you're going to end up overpaying for that attachment if you don't have another 3D production holding to work with it. While we're on the subject, have any of you guys tried the new farm scheme yet? I haven't tried the new farm scheme yet. I like I've played a couple games with it, and it's almost there. The design team, we just needed one more decent farm, and then I think it'll be, you know, as it was at the end of Samurai Edition, it'll be a fun alternative for decks to play that, you know, maximizes economy at the cost of utility. And I think that's really the idea of farms in the first place, is that, you know, it's it's the best money option, except, you know, the the drawback is that you don't get any of those awesome abilities on the cards. And right now, it's not quite there. We have Simple Men that is completely useless unless you have another farm out at the time, and that kind of hurts the whole thing. But, I mean, if you can get the decent start, then the economy runs like crazy. And I've been using it in my Paragon deck with some success, but at the same time, I've had a lot of instances where I end up with, like, one Simple Men, uh, or two Simple Men, or two Fertile Plains, that's the one where you get to add one gold to two holdings that are already out there, mm -hmm. and sometimes it just you're you're losing production from that. So, I think if maybe we maybe got one more good farm, then it would be there. 
Yeah, I really don't like the ones that buy themselves down for school. The farm options now are not, I mean, they pale in comparison to what the farm options were in. As Samurai, Samurai yeah, yeah, lots of decks could, like, it just maximize their economy and, and they wouldn't have the abilities, but so many competitive decks ran farms. The Samurai, like, I think there was a crab deck that didn't even run its clan holdings because it just ran farm. Yeah, yeah. And it, like, all farm and famous bazaar. <laughs> This, this, it only produces three, and it costs two. That's terrible. <laughs> they, oh. they, they had just eight gold people. Yeah, that you because you got to have you had what the farm holding that was a you got a famous bar bazaar every time you used it to buy another farm holding. Yeah, you had the farm holding that produced gold equal to the number of farm holdings. Oh, I want that one back. Yeah, that card uh, became ridiculous, one. especially if your opponent was also playing farm. Yeah, well, that was one of the things that, that we actually talked about if. There were actually to be some sort of extended samurai celestial tournament or something. So you might actually have to ban one of the the samurai edition farm holdings because the conglomerate of all of them all across the two arcs might just be too much. I mean, do, I, don't, I don't know anything about legacy decks. Like, do they play the farm scheme often? No, there's so many options. Legacy, no, no. Legacy, if you haven't won the game by like turn three in Legacy, you're. you're turn three? That's a slow deck. Okay. <laughs> what are you talking yeah. about? I've done quite well in Legacy with decks that take forever to win. Granted, that's because they're playing Yonin Sensei and my opponent <laughs> never gets to do anything. But. I have no idea what any of these words even mean, so I'm just going to get off the subject while I still can. <laughs> okay. But you know. This this arc is going to be longer, so you know, maybe maybe the farm scheme will end up panning uh, out to be as uh, dangerous as it was towards the understanding. Right? And I think that's the idea: is that you have a great economy, you don't have any abilities, but you're getting guys out really fast. Well, the last thing I want to say about diamond mines specifically is that one of the problems I have with diamond mines is that when I play, I really want to cycle through my dynasty cards aggressively, especially if I'm trying to hit my honor or breeder, breeder meta, because a lot of my best meta is in my dynasty deck. And when I buy Diamond Mine, I'm only moving one prop, one card out of my product. Although, you could you know, buy the Diamond Mine and then just flush something. That's true. You just don't want to flush something. I don't don't flush something. You didn't you, listen. What you're saying is, <laughs> if I had two holdings here, I'd buy both holdings, and then I'd get to see two new cards. Instead, I bought the diamond mine, so I could only well, see one new card. But you could just flush the other holding that the, showed up. The other problem is that I want which to I usually do in late game anyway. Get something out of my provinces as opposed to just trashing stuff that well, I can't did. buy. You, well, you got two holdings worth of production out of one province instead of two holdings worth of production out of two provinces. Well, wouldn't part of the appeal of diamond mine also to be that you wouldn't have to play as many holdings? Yes. Yeah, yes. I've been I've been thinking about that problem that. I did the, the math for it, yeah, and it wasn't that significant of a decrease. Like it went down from getting a six percent bad start with twelve holdings to about a five percent bad start with twelve holdings. Um, so when I actually crunched the numbers for it, uh, it didn't make enough of a difference for me to deal with the frustration of having to play diamond. Oh yeah, you just shouldn't play with diamond. Unless you're, unless you've got the Phoenix. Sure. Yeah, right. Uh, that is She's stupid good in combo. Yeah. Now, when we were talking about holdings and flushing in, in mid game, I, do you guys do that? Like, I, I just get rid of holdings. If I have a holding, almost any holding, 
if I don't buy it that turn because yeah. I have extra gold, it's gone. I, I get rid Unless of any gold like I don't traveling buy. peddler or something stupid good. Right, my, my general rule of thumb is if I'm not going to buy it for sure next turn, I'm going to flush it. And if it's holding, if I didn't buy it, it probably needs to go. Yeah, I'd say by the time it gets to mid-game, if it's not Chugo or a Peddler, then it's going to go. And even even then, I'll often just get rid of it, because there's always that chance that your opponent could surprise you and end up you know, taking out all of your personalities right. on the table, and then well, I mean, leaving you with no defense to turn after that. Right, I mean, part of it is my opponent. A military deck, I'm flushing holding definitely, whereas if I'm playing against an honor deck, I might I'd be more inclined to hold on to the holding simply because I don't have to worry about them taking my other province that has a guy, I've probably still got four provinces, I'm going to get to see three other cards. Well, yeah, in the I'm not definitely holding on to it, but if it, I'm again, I'm more inclined to hold on to the Piddler or whatever quality holding. In, in the Honor versus Honor matchup, um, I'll hold on to Honor gaining holdings just because I need them to accelerate. Right. Um, provided my opponent, I don't think my opponent's playing proper deference. Um, which is really kind of a tough call at this point, but that's the um, only time I would actually hold on to something. And this this should go without saying, but it actually took me several games to learn the lessons. That if you're playing against a ninja deck, don't win any holdings. No, yeah, good lord. <laughs> yeah. Even no. even. Oh, God, no, yeah. If you're playing against ninja and you actually only have that one guy under your province, and they take that province, you're you're screwed. Yeah. This is why I want to start running outer walls again. You know, because it's because you know, just playing against Ninja Day, I was like, there were multiple times where if I was running Outer Walls instead of Cost of Pride, you know, maybe I would have been in better shape. And you know, nobody's playing Determined Force anymore, so yeah. maybe those presenceless uh, defense cards should be starting to go back in vogue. Yeah, I still see I people playing Determined Force. I haven't watched. Yeah, I mean, only only, only action speak is the honor meta card now. It used to be it used to be Determined Force, and I still play Dead Force in my follower deck because I'm so worried about cards like uh, reinforce the gates to bring me into like a province that has a billion guys in it. Or or somebody or like an LSC deck, which normally followers is difficult time against, is that if I can reduce that province strength back to six, it usually won't be a problem. But yeah, most decks don't really need it and OAS is always a felt better alternative, which, you know, you can start meta the metting metting the meta there as a player. And, you know, maybe you think about running Settling the Homeless because follower decks aren't in general as popular as weapon decks. You can start thinking about running Outer Walls because, you know, very often you're going to find yourself saving a your province and even winning games because of that. I know that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done nearly as well as I did in in the recent Cotes if I wasn't running Outer Walls and I wasn't able to save myself from the, uh, the turn to, uh, what's the name of that, that, uh, that crap hero. Oh, Tatsuma Blitz. Yeah, like the Tatsuma Blitz came up against me a couple of times in Kote. So I had to run Outer Walls, I wouldn't have won. So, you know, I think it's something players should actually consider again. Yeah, and Outer Walls, and, and definitely not just in Honor Decks, but like you're saying, even in the military decks. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's something that Outer Walls sometimes gets thought of as a, oh, it's this presenceless defense card that I just play in, in Honor, but. There's so much just back and forth with minimal defending in military on military. Yeah, some military decks can't depend, defend worth a crap. You know, mine is just one example of that. But there are several military decks out there that, you know, just consider it. And cost of pride is obviously really, really attractive because, 
it subtracts even more from the uh, ranged attack, and it gives you that bow or straighten, you know, which is still really sweet, but, you know, just test it out, test it out. Do we have any more random tangents? Okay. So, so go, going once? In summary, 12 to 15, well, 13 to 15, and no diamond mines unless you're running. Every person is a cost 7. And Mizuhiko. And or Mitsuko. Mitsuko. Whatever her awesome name is. She's not actually loyal, is she? Nope. No one's running her except Phoenix. So. Yeah. But she's she's not Kidei, sorry. No. Okay. Any more tangents? Going once? Going twice? Aw. Line of the best. <laughs> here at Strange Assembly are completely biased American pigs because we spent like an entire episode talking about Gen Con and yet World Championships are coming up in a couple of weeks and I don't think we've talked about them at all. Well, none of us are going to Euros. No. It's expensive, dude. Yes, but th- there are a lot of people who are going to, to what's Worlds this year, what's Euros, I don't care. There are some, I guess there are some European players who fret about whether or not it's Euros or Worlds. I personally, it's, it's Gen Con and it's Euros, and I don't really care which one is Worlds, because it doesn't matter, except that if it's the, you know, what big end of the arc prize or something, they usually make sure that that happens at Worlds. So the Worlds may get a better story or something, but I think as far as the level of competition go, I don't think Euros gets any easier when it's just Euros instead of Worlds. And, you know, all the, the all those good players are still showing up. Yeah. Uh, and the same for, for Gen Con. But it largely has the same competitions and things that Gen Con did. Theme decks for the main deck and Second Chance. Second Chance. They have the, the special presentation. Uh, I think it's now how to defeat the Destroyers instead yes. of how to take down the Plague. I short, think- short and funny, people. Short I- and funny. I think I really think that the Lion presentation should have something to do with uh, picking on the minor clans for absolutely no reason, and you know just completely ignore the fact that the destroyers are taken over because some dude in the Tortoise Clan, you know, made a passing remark at some Akuma three hundred years ago, and therefore uh, we're concentrating on them. <laughs> Here you go. You they want to demonstrate what they're going to do to the destroyers. Remember at, at Gen Con, the crab presentation had. You know, they, they, they had the zombies that they brought in to beat up. Yeah. The Lion Clan Samurai can drag some Dragonfly Samurai <laughs> up and be like, per your Empress's command, we will now demonstrate what it is that we will do <laughs> to the Destroyers. And then they can massacre the Dragonfly. And everybody wins. Except the Dragonfly. They don't count. Yeah, well. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much the Lion win every time they do that. There actually are a solid number of Ronin minor clan fan sort of people, and they really hate stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, they, they really get into that. And, you know, Lion is not helping themselves in the whole honor bracket this time around. I guess we're still in abject failure or total failure or whatever it is. No, Lion are still in total we're failure. We're likely to stay there because, I don't know, the player base just doesn't seem to get all that pumped up about dressing up uh, dressing up for the honor contest, you know, which is fine. It's, as long as we don't suddenly become, like, a zero starting on a clan in the next arc from failing this, which I really thought was going to happen anyway. I love that. No. Lion <laughs> zombies. That, <laughs> well, they, that they already did Lion Oni, yeah. yes. I've been there done. and done that. 
So, so what's what's the actual story let's, prize let's, for? Let's instead make all the lion Ronin. They they only did that once. Right. Yes, this isn't the race for the throne. Becoming Ronin is not one of the story effects. Yeah, that would be awful. So, no, so by, by awful, do you mean awesome? <laughs> okay, Trevor fine. would be happy. Just, just the Okoto, Okoto become a Ronin. Okay, yes, that they've done. Okay, so Evan, you asked, what is the actual story prize? Yeah, what's what's your getting? Because like, if this is the World Championships, like this has got to be a pretty awesome story prize, right? Okay, Mr. Snide. <laughs> uh, the story prize for World Champs is Love and Madness. Uh, in the Death at Coton graphic... I guess, spoiler alert, if you're like the one guy left who hasn't read the Death at Coton graphic novel and cares. So in the Death at Coton graphic novel, at the end of it, they get rid of Kyoso no Oni and sort of devolve her back into the original Agasha Kyoso... Uh, who was the Dragon Clan Shugenja, because this was from back when the Agasha were part of the Dragon Clan, who had given her name to the Sword of Oni, because Kyoso was weird, but let's not get into that. Uh, she ended up being sent back into the Empire with the Dragon Clan. And so the prize is then Phoenix Clan have been studying her, and she didn't remember anything. They've been studying her for the last year and debriefing her, and now she's kind of been filled in on all the terrible things that Kyoso no Oni did, and what's going on in the Empire. And so she went crazy again, and she's decided to, again, summon an Oni and give it her name in hopes that, you know, either the Oni will take out Kalima, or somebody will just kill the Oni Lord, and then she'll be dead either way, because she can't stand the pain of living. Uh, this has subsequently been clarified a little bit, in that she was originally ran into the custody of the Dragon Clan, so you sort of read the description and people go, oh, why is she with the Phoenix Clan now? And so Fred has clarified that she has been with the Dragon Clan this whole time. She's just being studied by the Phoenix. And I think something along the lines of maybe the Phoenix wanted to kill her and the Dragon wouldn't let him. And the Empress hasn't made any pronouncements, so it's been up in little limbo. So, clearly you have an opinion on this story. I don't know, this is kind of recycling... Well, I mean, I thought the whole point of the Death of Code and Graphic Novel was that, you know, we don't get to get rid of Oni very often, but finally we're going to bring out a whole bunch of dudes and take care of this one. But now she's back. Maybe. Depends on what you plan she's if you win the tournament. But even then the description is like, if you choose not to, what, totally murder her? Is that one of the choices? Your, your choices are to either, right. or basically to kill her, yeah, or to let her... Summon the Oni Lord in hopes that the Oni Lord could be used against Kalimor. Right. Yeah, because no, that, that's no going to turn her down. No Tucker out of it choice. Yeah. Uh, Theoretically, you know, if you if you were, you know, playing the game thematically, like as any clan, you're not going to choose to let her live. Because the story, I don't know, it seems like the story team is basically saying if you oh, don't kill her, then the Oni's going to be back. Spider will let her live. Yeah, Spider will Because that's, that's Spider. But any other clan, why would they do that? Well, there's still kind of a significant population of Phoenix players who want the old school blood speaker stuff, who like the painted stuff. Like, and they, they would to have the Dragon Clan have it. I don't know why the Phoenix would end up with a bunch of blood speakers with painted stuff out of it. They just want Onis. <laughs> just want there to be more Onis. They want there to be more Onis and, and have have a part in it. So shouldn't they go play Spider and vote for and put their points towards Jakobu then? It's it's not so much the the, the Jakoku Shadowlands thing; it's the tainted Phoenix thing. 
That's what I'm saying. This doesn't generate any tainted thing. I don't know. I suppose if you agree to help Agasha Kyoso in summoning an Oni, you could end up tainted from that process. It's, or or it's not end from well. the Oni. Yeah, clearly, as they say in the story write-up, Agasha Kyoso, not thinking that clearly. <laughs> so yeah, basically I guess, you know, if you don't want your clan to end up accidentally summoning a gigantic Oni that Sephin Tashme is going to have to lead a bunch of dudes out to the Shadowlands to kill again. Yeah, we're then you should just murder her right now, yeah. Yeah, I guess I wish that there had been a fiction in there somewhere after Death of Coden, but before the announcement of that story prize that showed something with Agasha Kyoso, because I, I think that we, we thought that story seen, was wound up now. Yeah, you, yeah. you, you see, have seen more of a chance for that to develop. You know, you had this oh, big mysterious thing, what's going on, and now, yeah, before you know anything about this person, you know how the story's going to end. I mean, that's always true to some extent with a lot of these story prizes, but at least if you had seen something about Kyoso developing, then, yeah, when you get to reading that fiction, you you would know how it was going to end, but you wouldn't I mean, literally know how Kyoso's story is going to end before it's even begun. I, I think another issue is that I just I like it I like it better when a story prize has more choices to it. Like this seems to be really binary: is that no matter what clan wins, that she's either going to get killed or she's going to live, and the Oni is going to be back. So, but that's the thing is that with the Gen Con prize is that you know with the way it turned out, like Gaku helping to kill the bad God Beast is probably totally different than the way it would have been if, uh, like, you know, he had been Jura had been the guy to take him down. Like, it just would have been a completely different story, and there was more... Well, how... But this could be just as different. I mean, you could you can write a completely different story, depending on who who's involved. I mean, that, that story was, who's going to kill the god bees? Other than the possibility of the Jigoku prize being different, was did you have any kind of option with the god beast? It was just, which clan is going to provide the guy who goes in there and leads the forces? You know, I guess with that, is that, like, you knew that the Gavius was going to go down no matter what, but that I think the, you know, the interest was in how it was going to happen. But with this, it's like, you know, there's there's not as much variety there, I feel like. Yeah, maybe that the, the God Beast is obviously a, I mean, it's a monster, its purpose is to come in yeah. and be a big, huge, scary thing and then die, whereas, since Agasha Kyoso is more of a character, then you might uh, expect there to be some possibility for more distinct development in that. And again, I think that could be, might be less jarring if there had been a story before they announced the prize where you got to at least see where Kyoso was heading. I'll be interested to see how it's handled in the end. Um, you know, you might it might turn out to be easy for the story team to make something good out of it, especially if, if the Phoenix were to win. I think there's a lot of decent potential to make a good story out of it. Of, you know, somebody in the Phoenix clan just decides, you know, we realize that we want it back, we just need to go ahead and take care of this right now. Or, you know, if it could be a Phoenix person, you know, being so attached to the idea of having her back that they, you know, risk everything in order to do it. Um, you mean Dragon? Phoenix or Dragon. Like, I, I think there's potential... No, no, I agree with him. Phoenix you know, need to win. Like, there's potential either. But, you know, if somebody like Lion wins or if Crab wins, I think it's going to be a little more awkward. 
as far as like you know what's so, their what's this is like playing what's what's their business like dealing with this anyway if it's some random other clan it's everybody's business I guess, I guess that's true but but, but yeah I, I see your point she's in Dragonland, she's being studied by the Phoenix, yeah. and if some other clan wins, then you're going to have to have a reason for that Actually, character to then go and, and deal with. Certainly, the the sensible thing to do is to kill Kyoso. I, I mean, there's you're, if she ends up summoning the Oni, it's because it's a player who's going to be like, ooh, another Oni Lord would be cool. You know, then they have to you know come up with a character who would actually want an Oni. I mean, it'll be easy if Spider wins and donates the points to Jigoku, because then it's, it's pretty clear. It's like, we want we want Kiss and the Oni back. And then it'll be pretty easy for the story team to deal with it. That's, that, of course, that actually produces a little oddity in that giving points to Jigoku is kind of supposed to be helping Kylie Ma. So I guess that would... So really... That would just be that she was wrong that Kyoso no Oni is not going yeah. to... Yeah, Kyoso no Oni just teams up with Kalima then, right? It turns yeah. out Kalima is more awesome than Fuling at the end yeah. of the day. Well, I think she's already shown that she's got more ability to trash Robu than She's got... Well, yeah, but the Oni seemed to be siding with her anyway, so... Yeah, but you could have, I guess... Siding with her, fleeing before her, same difference. Whatever. Kyoso no Oni could go find Gaku. The two could, you know... Activate their Wonder Twin powers. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Look, I have four arms, you have four arms, that's destiny. <laughs> They'll have beautiful Shadowland babies. And that's why the fiction is called Love and Madness. <laughs> but then there's there's another story prize, right? It's the yes. Second Chance prize. The Second Chance event has Coronada's Destiny, which is basically the winner can invite Coronada to join their clan. That's how the prize is phrased. You can invite him to join your clan. I'm assuming that you would accept if he's invited. Well, they, they that would be a pretty lame. That, that, would, that would be pretty well, funny. The winner, has no. the, the winner has the option of uh, saying no, Coronada stays a Ronin. But presumably, if the winner chooses, we invite Coronada to join. Coronada does, in fact, join. Or else, that would possibly be the worst story prize <laughs> ever. Coronada, please join the crane clan. No. <laughs> So, do, I, do, do I look like a crane? Have you, have you seen the muscles on my guard? Uh, I'm not nearly as androgynous as the rest of you guys, so... I'm blatantly a guy. <laughs> and I'm not wearing those pale blue shirts. Sorry. <laughs> it, does, it does not at all work with my eyes. How about if uh, if Jigoku wins and we get Kurinata Naomi? That'd be pretty awesome. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> you're going to have love and madness result in the return of Kyosu Naomi. Kyosu Naomi. Dude, that's gonna be good for the Shadowlands next arc. <laughs> yeah. Coronada's yeah. Destiny is its one of those prizes where this is, I, I suppose, uh, unavoidable that you're gonna have prizes like this, but it's one of those prizes where once it's announced, everybody looks at it and goes, Look, oh yeah, that would be neat to win, but there are definitely clans who have a pre existing interest. In, in oh, yeah. Coronado. I mean, Crab really, really want him. Dragon really, really want him. You know, he's a tactician, so Lion would be fine with having him, too. But he would be a little bit awkward in Scorpion. I'm not going <laughs> to lie about that. I mean, I guess I guess with his experience version, he's a Kenzana, right? He'd be like, he would, he'd he'd be like, like Kenzo the whole time. Okay, yeah. He'd, he'd be like the team. highest personal honor among the I'm not even thinking in terms of how much does he fit in with the story. I mean, you could always fit somebody in. You could have, you know, yeah, oh, I'm Masakazu. Yeah, Masakazu. So, uh, but just in terms of desire, I think, you know, Crab Clan players, they've actually been using this guy in oh, their yeah, decks the a lot. Dragon, there, there are some Dragon Clan players who have been drooling over the prospect of 
Marimoto Coronata since he got printed before all this stuff even showed up with the story. And of course, there are dedicated Ronin enthusiasts who would like him to end up staying as a Ronin. So I guess that I hope that one of those three outcomes happens as a result of that. That either either Crab get him, Dragon get him, or you know, some Ronin favoring guy wins and then has him stay a Ronin because uh, those, those seem to play to pre-existing desires of chunks of the player base rather than just being, but sure, I, I didn't really have any pre-existing interest in that, but now I saw the commercial, sure, I'll take him if you're, if you're offering. He'd be a pretty good Phoenix. Yeah, come on, him and Masakazu, what, he, double team? Or no, that's the thing, he'd be a pretty good anything. And whoever gets Coronada is going to be happy to have Coronada. They'll Probably get some cool experience to Coronada card, and they'll be ecstatic to have him. I, it, so it's it's not a story prize where you've got a bunch of clans you don't have an interest in it. I just hope that one of those, the sort of three factions that I think have a, sort of a, a pre-announcement interest in the character, manages to to get something. Uh, so real quick, I mean, Europe, Europe is a different environment in terms of the actual like card game in terms of what clans tend to do well. So who do y'all think is going to win? Like my bet is on crab winning again because I think I mean what the past two Euro championships have been won by crab, right? Maybe not. Like at least two in the last three years have been won by crab. And uh there just seems to be a really good community there and the deck is good as it is right now. And um I don't know, this is the one I've seen winning Euro I, I think it'll either be like I think the crab reserve deck is really, really good. Yeah. And, I think it'll either be Crab or Spider. Because um, I know there's a lot of Spider activity out there now. Uh, people are trying to win things for Spider to donate points one way or the other. So, And you know, Crane is really popular in Europe compared to the US. So, you know, Crane control is decent now. And I think people might be surprised about how well it does over there. Well, I think you've got two different things at play. I'm actually... I don't know how much the general player base matters for who wins. And I haven't actually broken these numbers down. Back in Samurai Edition, when I was doing all my statistical things, I actually at one point broke the, the clan population numbers down between the two continents. And there are definitely differences. And I think that there actually are substantially fewer crowd players proportionally in Europe. But it made it seem the, different because they seem to do really well. Well, that's the thing, yeah, yeah. because, well, th there are, you know, you go into Euro Champs or, or Gen Con or any huge tournament, there are only so many people in that tournament who have the chops to win yeah. something that tough. Uh, I mean, and if you go to a Spanish tournament and Unicorn win, it may not be because there are a lot of Unicorns, because Unicorn is amazing. It may just be because that Pablo guy is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so... At, at the very high levels, that can be, I just have these top-level players that may pick it up. And, and I I think the overall player base gets reflected in, obviously, the general tournament population and may get reflected in the top 16 or 32, but I don't know how much it carries through to the winner. Uh, but you are right, there are more Crane in Europe. I think there may be a fewer... There's fewer Mantis, I think. Line. Uh, yeah, I think there are fewer Mantis, and the other, Lord knows I'm about to offend somebody off the top of my head when I think about the the, the guys you think of as top-notch Mantis players. 
Are any of them European? Mm, not that I can think of. Uh, yeah, so I please send hate mail to uh, Trevor. Send it to Chris. Because <laughs> uh, he's not here to remind me of whoever it is that I... You know, Trevor and Dennis are in the U.S. Deneen doesn't really stick to Mantis anymore. You had uh, Richard John down in Australia, but I haven't... He must not be playing anymore. He used to basically win every single Australian event uh, with with Mantis. But, yeah, I have not seen... I, I don't I don't recall seeing just anything big coming out of European Mantis. Because Europe got bored of Paris hundreds of years ago, and it's not like that anymore. They're like yeah. the white dudes, white-haired dudes in court. There's a good number of Phoenix players in Europe, too. Um, the one time I went there, uh, there was a, a pretty strong Phoenix contingent. Yeah, but... Also, just in addition to num- the numbers, I, I do think that the environment is going to be one where there are lots and lots of clans who have a shot at, at winning. Uh, you know, I we run the numbers, the, the Plague War environment that we just wrapped up, I think was, you know, mathematically the most balanced L5R format ever. I know I've only actually done the numbers back to the start of Samurai Edition, but I think we can safely say that anything in Samurai or Celestial Edition is always going to be more balanced than almost any... From what I hear, yeah. yeah. Certainly the best of Samurai and Celestial Edition is going to be more balanced than anything that came before that, where you just had years where there were clans that had absolutely no chance of winning any kind of real tournament whatsoever. And so... I think that makes it harder to predict just who can win. I guess, I mean, if you were going to pick a clan who wasn't going to win, I mean, if you were going to pick what is the least likely clan, you win. I, I mean, you have unicorn. to say Unicorn yeah. or, or Mantis. But I guess I would say Mantis, and this was because, yeah, there are, in fact, a couple of really amazingly good Unicorn players that you know one can rattle off in Europe. And, I, and as long as you've got... Mm, unicorn versus Mantis down there. I'm not picking against Pablo. So, so this is this is this is what you. By the way, this is how you do it. Uh, it's a callback. I say Pablo, you say Loco. Pablo, Pablo, Loco, Pablo, Loco. There you go. And if you uh, don't know what I'm talking about, then you should go out drinking more at Gencon. <laughs> what I am looking forward to though is that the the deck list that kind of Europe. Uh, often surprise me with the crazy combos that people can put together just because, you know, the environment is different out there. And, you know, it's like you, you see creative stuff anytime there's a big tournament like that, but, uh, it's, it's just creative in a different way than America usually is. So uh, I'm always excited to see what's this. Yeah. And here, just, just forewarning, after Euro Champs and some new you haven't seen it before deck list comes out, the top eight or one or something. Do not go on your clan's forums and say, gosh, that deck sucks. I don't know how it wins. Europe must be terrible. <laughs> You're just going to look like an idiot. I Just forewarned. Because that always happens after Eurochamps or another huge European event. I'm, I'm going to talk to Sparks for a second. You know, if goblins do well, then you can't complain to me about how they're not good anymore. I'm just saying <laughs> No, 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 no. Because see, if goblins do well, then I have to listen to Trevor Wine about reading goblin stories. Oh, no. So the problem is that yeah, tre- Trevor you needs to... You prefer Trevor Wine about reading wine stories? Yeah, I'll so, yeah, tre- Trevor needs to pick one or the other.
You're starting eliminating this entire faction, half of that faction. Yeah. By the way, Sprax, I'm kidding. I love him. Oh, no, no, I, I think I think you you love him, but you weren't kidding. Oh, <laughs> I guess maybe it's a little bit. Of, no, he's he's a cool guy. And by, while we're on the subject, you know, guys like Sprax and me and playing other players are an echo Panku, and if people don't know about it, they really should uh, take the opportunity to check it out. Um, I think Kevin has written a guide in the Phoenix forum, so he's going to post it on Strange Assembly at some point shortly after. Uh, Great, now I have to do it. Cop- you have to copy and paste the entire message. Well, it's <laughs> about two years old, so I really need to go back and edit it and correct it to it's, update it to current times. Yes, you'll also probably have to go on the Strange Assembly forums and post, post my calculations. Numbers. Yeah, I will. And, what you know, you we, we can even, like, I can even uh, set up a, a channel strange assembly so that people uh, people can get together on there. Like I know the the Roku cast has their own channel and there's still a decent amount of people um, hanging out there like Sparks and me. Uh, so you also check it out, play online. It's great, especially for people if you're like me and you don't live in an area where there's a lot of L5 R players and you want to practice that deck for an upcoming tournament, but nobody's physically around you. It can be really priceless. So, so what you're saying is that you're derailing the uh, segment to beg people to come and, and, and hang out with you? Okay. Anything else different that you're a chance from, Jack, other than the environment? Uh, not really. There's a lot of drinking. That's a, yes. that's a different... I think I said it's that, not really. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. It, the, the beer's better over there, yeah. So, that's different. Well, that's that's the kind of insight <laughs> that you can only get here on <laughs> Strange Assembly. Beautiful. That's it for episode 14 of Strange Assembly. As always, you can find us on the web at strangeassembly.com or search for Strange Assembly on iTunes. You can email us at strangeassembly at gmail.com and don't forget to visit the forums at strangeassembly.com. For Evan Paul, Jay Earl, John Freeman, and Kevin Kennedy, I'm Chris Stevenson. Stay classy, Rokugan.